Hamlet Podcast, episode 43. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth, with me your host, Connor Hanretty. Well, here we are. We've found our way to what is probably the most famous scene in the play, where the witches cook up their horrific potion. Given that their recipe features some unpleasant and disturbing ingredients, I want to flag in advance that this episode contains some shocking images and ideas and is not suitable for younger listeners. I don't often imagine that this is a podcast that children will be listening to. It is an in-depth analysis of one of Shakespeare's grisliest plays, after all. But this one, in particular, is not for the faint-hearted. That said, here we go. A couple of scenes back, the witch's supernatural boss, Hecate, told them to provide their vessels, charms, spells, and everything else. Never one to disappoint, Shakespeare now gives us just that. The witch's incantation is among the most famous lines he ever wrote. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. But what are these words supposed to mean? Fire burn and cauldron bubble is pretty straightforward, and if you wanted to give a group of witches something to chant and repeat while they prepare their grisly stew, it makes sense. But what about all this doubling? Well, we've had this notion throughout the play. Equivocation casts such a constant shadow over this story, and over the whole period in which it was written, that we have to bear it in mind. Henry Garnet, one of the key figures of the foiled gunpowder plot, was undone in part by an entire treatise he wrote on lying and equivocation, mere months before this play came before the public and the king. So anyone chanting double language or double speak must catch our attention when they do so. Double, double, toil and trouble. We've moved from the fog and filthy air now to what some stage directions call a cavern. Hecate suggested that we'd be meeting them at Acheron, an ancient portion of the underworld, or hell. Suffice to say, where we are is a desolate, remote and secret place, entirely the opposite of the battlefields, camps or man-made castles where we've been so far. At the centre of the scene is a cauldron, probably boiling over a fire. It's mostly thanks to this very scene that we associate witches with cauldrons. Before this essential depiction, a cauldron was a household object, a large pot in which to prepare food. Now that neither the word nor the object is in regular use, we tend to think only of witches when we hear of cauldrons. A clap of thunder starts the scene, and the witches begin to speak. The first announces that thrice the brinded cat hath mewed. A brinded cat is one that has stripes in contrasting colours, something like a tabby cat these days, which number two joins in. Thrice and once the hedge pig whined. They've heard a hedge pig, a much more evocative name for what we call a hedgehog, whine four times. These are little omens announcing that the right moment has come for their business. The third witch agrees, since Harpier cries, "'Tis time, tis time." In our earlier encounter with them, we heard the names of Grey Malkin and Paddock, two of their familiars. We hadn't heard the third, but here it is, Harpier. 
Harpier is telling them, as have the thunder, the mewling cat and the whining hedgehog, that it's time to get cooking. Shakespeare is very much playing to King James here. Bear in mind that this was a king with a real fixation for witches who had written a whole book on demonology. Shakespeare had presumably read it, and he took much of the witch's characteristic actions from it, particularly the ability to summon storms, which we've already seen, to predict the future, essential to the entire play, and now here, the ability to brew potions. As we will see during this scene, we get a lot of flattery towards James, but first we have this titillating scene, the kind of behaviour that would normally only be performed in secret. Shakespeare puts it centre stage and gives us their recipe in all its horrific detail. As ever, it's the first witch that speaks first. Round about the cauldron go, in the poisoned entrails throw. Toad that under cold stone, days and nights has thirty-one. Sweltered venom sleeping got, boil thou first i' the charmed pot. The first thing we have to notice is that this is a physical activity. The witch is describing movement around and about the cauldron, as though it's part of the spell. This is a great invitation to performers and even choreographers. The scene is always a great opportunity for theatrical invention. As they move, they'll have to add a specific list of horrific ingredients to whatever is already boiling in this cauldron. We start with poisoned entrails, and things won't get any more pleasant from here. Next up is more poison, this time the venom that has been sweated or sweltered from a toad. Toads were believed to be poisonous, although the frogs and toads that are really deadly don't tend to live in chilly Scotland. This toad is specific. It has spent a month, or 31 days and nights, under a cold stone. These kinds of details are intriguing and specific. They add a sense of precision and even magic to what these witches are cooking. This kind of time-based harvesting will feature often through the recipe. So, the toad's venom is boiled first. As it goes in, all three witches chant their refrain. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. As well as the echo of equivocation, there's also a sense of compounding. No more than Lady Macbeth's obsequious language when Duncan arrived in her battlements. In every point twice done and then done double. This repetition expands impact and increases things almost exponentially. The more they chant, the more potent their potion will become. Next up, the second witch adds her contributions. Fillet of a fenny snake, in the cauldron boil and bake. Eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog. Adder's fork and blind worm's sting, lizard's leg and owlet's wing. For a charm of powerful trouble, like a hell broth boil and bubble. A fenny snake is one that lives in the muddy water of the fens, it's a grim, miserable little image, made all the more striking by her alliteration. She's putting in a fillet, a choice cut of meat, but it's a slice of a deeply unpleasant creature. This juxtaposition of the ordinary and the horrific is also there in the fact that they're using this ordinary domestic item, a cauldron, to brew their very dark magic. 
a recent production I saw, expanded this to a very contemporary degree, and had the witches preparing their brew in an instant pot. A cauldron, back then, would be used for both baking and boiling, since it was highly unusual for an ordinary home to have an oven. So that's why her snake will in the cauldron boil and bake. Next come some of the most famous ingredients. Eye of newt, toe of frog. No more than the toad's venom, these tiny ingredients would be rather difficult to come by. Wool of bat comes next, the downy fur from a bat's stomach. Catching a bat would be hard enough, but then stripping it of its protective woolly fur would be quite a job. Tongue of dog might be a more accessible item, but cutting a dog's tongue out immediately seems a despicably cruel act. Bats, newts, toads and frogs are not especially beloved animals, but they likewise don't deserve to have their eyes or toes removed. But harming a dog strikes us differently. This magic is particularly evil. After the tongue, the second witch produces an adder's fork, a snake's forked tongue, and a blindworm's sting. A blindworm, also known as a slow worm, is a kind of legless lizard. Like toads, they were believed to be poisonous, and the slow worm was considered to have a sting like a bee or a scorpion. These are characteristic unpleasant features of unpleasant animals. We then get a lizard's leg and an owlet's wing. We've discussed owls several times as harbingers of bad things, but here the cruelty of removing a bird's wing is heightened. It's not just an owl, but a baby owl, or a howlet, that has been maimed. The witches seem to be cooking up a pot full of cruelty here, as the second witch proclaims, it'll be a charm of powerful trouble, a hell broth indeed. Their excitement is building as they stir in all of these ingredients, and they repeat their chorus again. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. No surprise that witch number three now has a turn, and she produces even more blood-curdling ingredients. Scale of dragon, tooth of wolf, witch's mummy, maw and gulf of the ravened salt sea shark, root of hemlock digged in the dark, liver of blaspheming Jew, gall of goat and slips of yew, silvered in the moon's eclipse, nose of Turk and tartar's lips, finger of birth-strangled babe, ditch delivered by a drab, make the gruel thick and slab. Add thereto a tiger's children for the ingredients of our cauldron. While I was preparing this episode, I found an article on the internet, never the most reliable source, that attempted to parse all of the witch's ingredients and convince the reader that actually these horrendous items all refer to flowers, as though these characters are in fact benevolent ladies boiling a few herbs and plants to put some good in the world. I really think this misses the mark entirely. The whole point of Shakespeare staging this right is to give the public a lurid glimpse of witches and witchcraft, and the savage, monstrous things they get up to. If King James was presented with a trio of women boiling flowers, making tea perhaps, rather than the horrific ingredients we're hearing about, wouldn't even he have been disappointed? This was a man who had overseen numerous witch hunts in Scotland less than a decade before our play, in which hundreds of people had been put to death. This is no casual messing. These witches are making a charm that will summon some very, very shocking things. 
The third witch's ingredients are the most hair-raising and fantastical. She has scales from a dragon and a wolf's tooth. Very hard indeed to come by. She also has mummy from a witch. This was some kind of a substance made from the flesh of a dead body. It was a capital offence to mess around with a dead body, and even more illegal was the practice of harvesting a corpse's flesh to make powders or potions for use in witchcraft. It's an exceptionally controversial ingredient in this stew. Next, and goodness knows how, she throws in the maw and gulf, the stomach and throat, of a sea shark. Sharks were notoriously ravenous, so including the body parts associated with their ability to devour would have been especially potent magic. Next, she adds some hemlock root. Hemlock, known to be poisonous at least since ancient Greece, when it was the means by which Socrates' life was ended, is a notorious sedative and poison. It was considered even more potent when it was dug up in the dark. Again, the time of procuration is important. This witch, very problematically, now throws in liver of blaspheming Jew. This immediately strikes us as inappropriate. We've already had the mashed remains of a witch, so it isn't the first human element they've employed. But why a Jewish person? Much has been written about whether this is an anti-Semitic nod, and while I certainly don't excuse it, we should bear in mind that these are witches doing, by extension, the work of the devil. Jewish people had been expelled from England for centuries and would not be officially allowed back until about 50 years after this play, so they were entirely alien to most Londoners' lived experience. A Jewish person was about as rare as a dragon, and so there's a sense of the exotic here as well. These witches have influence in places as far away as Aleppo, so perhaps they could murder people wherever they choose. A more basic and pragmatic explanation might simply be that Jew rhymes with you. After the goat's gallbladder, the next ingredient is a few slivered branches from a yew tree. Yews were considered poisonous and associated with all manner of bad things. In secondary school, I remember loving studying Milton's Paradise Lost. Although it was written several decades after Macbeth, Milton does mention how portentous an eclipse can be. From behind the moon, in dim eclipse, disastrous twilight sheds. Here, likewise, we are given the sense that the poisonous yew is even more noxious when it is harvested or silvered during the moon's eclipse. Following on from the unpleasant rhyme of Jew and you, we get to eclipse and lips. Not content with harvesting body parts from witches and Jews, our third mistress of darkness produces the nose of a Turk and a Tartar's lips. Again, I think the primary image is one of exoticism. There's a whole book to be written about the influence of the Ottoman Empire on Elizabethan and Jacobean England, and, while we're on the subject, I wholeheartedly recommend the amazing Empire podcast by Anita Anand and William Dorimple, wherein they speak at length about this during their second season. For Shakespeare, the Ottomans, or Turks, were the enemies of all Europe. The Tartars came from even further into Central Asia and were more exotic still. One might make the point that all of the kinds of people being dismembered into this foul potion witches, Jewish, Muslim and Eastern Orthodox people, were somehow alien, exotic, mistreated, misunderstood and mistrusted in Shakespeare's England. 
Our third witch continues, producing an even more savage ingredient. The finger of a child strangled at birth, having been born in a ditch and delivered by a prostitute. One other potential explanation for all these wretched body parts is that they all come from non-baptised bodies. The various other religions wouldn't have been baptised in the English or Scottish faith, and then a child that died at birth wouldn't have been baptised either, certainly not if it was born in a ditch with no one around to care about it. So none of these would have had the supposed protection of God and baptism, and therefore perhaps have been more potent ingredients for the witches and their hellish broth. The third witch now gives some actual cooking instructions. Make the gruel thick and slab. They're obviously boiling down and reducing this broth to something thicker and more congealed. Slab gives a particularly unpleasant sound, as of something foul or perhaps even enhanced with saliva. It's really hideous, isn't it? As if the entire list wasn't obscure and impossible enough, she finishes her list of ingredients with one more. The children, or entrails, of a tiger. No mean feat to find that in the foul and fair wilds of medieval Scotland. With the tiger parts, her contribution is complete, and so for a third time, of course we hear it three times, they make their incantation again. Double, double toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. To wind up the charm, the second witch, not to be outdone it seems, adds the coup de grace. She says, cool it with a baboon's blood. Then the charm is firm and good. This horrendous mixture is tempered and cooled with the blood of a baboon. No more than tigers or dragons or sharks, to say nothing of the various kinds of humans officially excluded from living in Shakespeare's England, baboons were a rare thing. Having enough baboon's blood to cool a cauldron full of these nightmares was as impossible as it was shocking. And that, I think, is the point. The witches have this outrageous supply of ugly and transgressive ingredients, all thrown in the pot to titillate the king and his mania for demonology. Now, says the second witch, the charm is thick and good. It's secure and is ready. But surely it's anything but good. As if all of this witchcraft wasn't enough, the stage directions now give us Hecate herself in a little encore performance. She arrives, apparently, with three other witches. I'm sure there's something chilling to be achieved here. The witches all keep crying double, double, and then when the charm is ready, a second set of three witches appears. That's some theatrical magic waiting to happen, for sure. What's happening here is supposed to feel like Shakespeare's version of a witch's Sabbath, a celebration of their secret black and midnight behaviour. It's the total inverse of the banquet that the Macbeths spent so long arranging. Their one at least was attended by men, and this appears to be mostly women. And not to be outdone by the ghost of Banquo, this one will have even more appalling appearances later in the scene. But it's Hecate first, and she's pleased with the witch's work. Oh, well done. I commend your pains. And everyone shall share the gains. And now about the cauldron sing, like elves and fairies in a ring, enchanting all that you put in. She's pleased with their recipe, and commends their hard work. Perhaps their pains were in the procuring of this catalogue of grotesques, 
rather than in the easier work of flinging them all in a pot. Hecate proclaims that everyone will benefit from their work, sharing in the gains. We have another indication of witch choreography from her, as she insists that they all gather around the cauldron and sing, like elves and fairies in a ring, enchanting or bewitching everything that has gone into it. I quite like that Hecate mentions how fairies and elves are so prone to gathering in rings, since fairy rings and the like were such features of the landscapes of the British Isles. Here in Ireland you can still find them in certain areas, if you know where to look. For a Greek goddess of the underworld, it's nice to see that she knows her stuff. She now leads the witches, three or six, or maybe even more of them, in a song. Again, according to the stage directions we have, the song is called Black Spirits, appropriately enough. Perhaps this is another interpolation from Thomas Middleton. The full text of this song also appears in his play The Witch, so perhaps there was a crossover. Regardless, we are getting a full display of witchy antics, after which we will have another very famous announcement. But I think we've had more than enough of these shenanigans for now, so we'll leave the witches to their song and dance, and we'll pick things up as the pricking of the witch's thumbs will announce in the next episode. Thanks a million for listening, and I'll speak to you next time.